welcome to Murder and Mystery. I'm your host, Summer. I'm flying solo on this episode, but we're still going to have fun and I'm still going to bring you some great stories, or at least I hope you find them great. This first one that I have for you is a murder mystery that is still unsolved today. I found it very interesting the first time that I had heard of it and was very eager to do some more research on it. So I'm really excited to tell you the story of Bella and the Witch Elm. So in 1943 in Worcester, England, this area was hit very hard by the war and they were having daily air raids and Families were given just small rations of meat to try and make it through. So they weren't eating very much. There was constant fear, a lot of stress. And of course, parents were trying to keep kids close. Kids weren't having a lot of fun because they were always on the lookout for these air raids. Nothing was fun at that time. So kids, and especially young boys, were always on the lookout for some type of opportunity to have an adventure. On April 18, 1943, four teenage boys decided to go out and do some somewhat illegal hunting, try to bring in a little bit of extra protein to help feed their families, and have a little bit of adventure and just be boys. So Robert Hart... Thomas Willett, Bob Farmer, and Fred Payne set out that day to look for bird's nest and any small game that they could poach to bring home for their family. They spent the day walking through woods and along creek banks and just, you know, relaxing and talking and laughing and really having a nice time and not really worrying about the war and everything that had been going on. So as it started to get dark, they decided to go through Hagley Woods on their way home. This would give them a shortcut home, but Hagley Woods was part of the Hagley Estate, which belonged to Lord Cobham. This was near Witchbury Hill. This was private property and they would have been in a lot of trouble had they been caught on this property. Although they decided to go through it and they knew that they could get in trouble, at this point they'd had a nice time, the mood was really light, so they weren't thinking anything of it. This It wasn't going to be a big deal going through here. Nobody was worried about getting caught. As they were walking through the woods, 17-year-old Bob Farmer saw a tree that looked really promising. This was a witch elm with a perfectly hollow middle that would have been great for a bird's nest. So he climbed up into this tree and this tree, it kind of rose up and then had these limbs that reached out from the middle and he climbed up and up into these limbs and looked down into the middle and he saw something down in the dark of the hollow of this tree that gleamed a 
whitish color in the growing dusk. Just the little bit of light that he could see, it glowed kind of whitish and it looked just like an egg. Relieved and excited that they'd found something, he reached in, he pulled this egg out of the dark of the tree, he lifted it up for his friends to see, turned it around, and he looked straight into the face of a skull with two crooked front teeth. There was a small piece of flesh still attached. Some hair was still attached to this flesh and hanging down. Bob just stared at this for a a few minutes. He was trying to wrap his brain around what he was seeing. He just looked into the face of the skull and then he lets out this piercing shriek and drops the skull back down into the tree. But it doesn't go down in properly. Not wanting to touch it again, but wanting it to go back down in there so that nobody knows that they disturbed it, he gets a stick and he starts trying to put it down in there. But what he finds is some material. And so he drops that material into the tree and he uses the stick to push it down into the tree and get the skull down into the correct spot. And then he scrambles down the tree and they decide to leave because, you know, they were on the property illegally. They didn't want to get caught. So they make a pact that they're not going to tell anybody that they had been there. And they're not gonna tell anybody what they saw. They're just gonna pretend that they were never there. As they get back toward their homes, they make this vow and they all four break up and go to their individual homes and go in empty-handed. Their day of fun was completely ruined by this nightmare that none of them were able to forget. So all the boys were really bothered by what they had found. It was traumatizing for them. I mean, they were teenagers, and even though they're in the middle of a war, this was something that none of them had ever seen before. But 13-year-old Thomas Willett was really struggling with this dilemma. He was the youngest in the group, and for him, he really struggled with what he should do. I mean, there's this dead body in this tree, and he needed to tell somebody And he really felt that if he didn't tell somebody, it was wrong. So he finally told his parents. And he broke down and told his parents that night. It didn't even take him that long to say something. So his parents called the police. And by morning, police were swarming Hagley Woods. Uh, It didn't take them long to find the tree. They found an almost complete skeleton with a shoe, fragments of clothing, and a gold wedding ring. The skull still had tufts of hair and a clear dental pattern despite some missing teeth. And there were also the remains of a hand found a little way from the tree. Although most of the body was stuffed in the tree, 
there were some body parts that were kind of scattered around on the tree. But it had been dusk. It had been almost dark when the boys came upon this. So this is why they didn't see the body parts when they got up there. And they only found the body that was in the tree. So let's talk about the forensics that they found. What the police found was an almost complete skeleton. There was some hair remaining, a clear dental pattern that had some missing teeth, but there was enough of a dental pattern that they could take imprints. Most of the remains were in the tree, but there was an arm and a hand found 13 paces from the tree. The skeleton was found to be a female between the ages of 35 and 40 years old. She was five feet tall. She had given birth to at least one child. She had had light brown hair, and she had been dead around 18 months at that time. There was a piece of taffeta stuck in her mouth, and it was determined that she had been suffocated. This was the only cause of death they could find, and that was what they were thinking until Bob admitted to dropping fabric from the scene into the skull and using a stick to push the skull back down into the tree. You know, he dropped it down in there and it didn't go back down. So they weren't sure if this fabric had actually been there and was the cause of death or if this fabric had been stuck down into the mouth of the skull when he pushed the skull back down. So they had to go back and rethink this. So they weren't really sure about that. They still kind of leaned towards suffocation, but they weren't sure after he admitted that. From the measurements of the tree, they determined that the body had been placed when it was still warm, due to the body being able to fit in, rigor mortis had not set in. If the body had already been in rigor mortis, it would have been stiff and wouldn't have been able to fold up into a way that they could have gotten the body into the tree. Now, obviously, after a while, the body does soften again and you can manipulate it a little bit more but they really felt that this body, you know, that this person had been killed and she had been taken to the tree immediately. They found a cheap imitation gold ring and size five and a half crepe sold shoes and cheap quality clothing. So here is what the police found in their investigations. So police started investigating with the knowledge that this woman was murdered and stuffed in a tree very quickly before rigor mortis made her stiff. This made them believe that she had been murdered close by and then put in the tree. So we know that there are different stages to rigor and that the temperature can affect how quickly the body goes into rigor. Rigor will also end so the body could have been left somewhere else and then transported to the tree later. So at that time, we don't know. They were operating under the assumption that she had been murdered and placed in the tree immediately. But there are other options for that. 
The murder was ritualistic and had the hallmarks of satanic ceremony. According to their investigations, they said one hand had been severed. Taffeta had been wedged in her mouth, but you remember that Bob said he had picked up the stick and there had been fabric on the stick and he had stuffed the skull back down into the tree when it wouldn't go down. There had been fabric on that stick that he was stuffing that skull down in there so that that taffeta could have been what was on that stick and could have been wedged down in the skull. That could have been the cause of that. But we don't know for sure. One of her arms was left 13 paces from the skeletal remains as when a witch has been executed. The witch elm also plays an important part in the dark arts, and Hagley Woods was known for its association with witchcraft. However, police dismissed any talk of Satanism and publicly stated the position of the bones was due to animals scattering them. They concentrated on claims of the woman being a prostitute. So, although there were, there were all of these rumors that the murder was ritualistic and you know, that there was this satanic ceremony. Publicly, they tried to dismiss this, but the fact that all of this was listed and it was written down in this way, it seems that they kind of did look at that at least, you know, that they knew that her arm was left exactly 13 paces from the skeletal remains and that this was... The same as when a witch was executed and all of that. It it looks like they at least looked at that angle. They did look at the fact that she might have been a prostitute. Police were able to do a reconstruction to determine what they thought the woman possibly looked like. They cross-referenced the woman with missing person reports in the area but there were so many per missing persons due to the war that they were unable to make an identification. At this time, with daily air raids, with so many people leaving the area, I mean, this is 1943, there's not as easy of communication. And so there were just a lot of people being reported missing, people that weren't reported missing, but just you know, weren't in the area. People were coming and going. There was just a lot going on. And so they weren't able to make an identification at that time. So they used dental records. They thought that they could find a match because her crooked teeth were very distinctive, but they couldn't find anything. They searched for leads using her shoes, which were made by Waterfoot, a company in Lancaster. They found that all but six pairs were sold at a market that was approximately 11 miles from Birmingham, but they couldn't really trace those shoes. Six months after the body was found, this was around Christmas time in 1943, a message appeared written in chalk on the side of a house in uh, nearby Old Hill. It read, Who put Lubella down the witch elm? 
So police believe this indicated that someone knew the woman that was stuffed in the tree, but they couldn't figure out who wrote the message. They tried asking, they went around interrogating people, looking, asking who saw anybody around that area, and nobody saw anybody write the message. This was also the first time a name had been associated with the body. In 1944, graffiti on the Hagley Obelisk that was near the bot where the body was found stated, who put Bella in the witch elm? Again, this was investigated, but the person who wrote this was never found. Nobody saw anybody do it. This graffiti continued to show up into the 70s. So from 1943, around Christmas time in 1943 until the 1970s, somebody went around this area writing messages asking who put Bella in the witch elm. This looked like it was the same artist who did this, but nobody ever came forward with any information on who was doing this. And the name just kind of stuck. So the name Bella was given to this body. Facial reconstruction was done and was featured on a Nazi murder mystery, but there were still no leads that were found. According to Birmingham Live in 2018, the skeleton has been lost and there's been no relevant documentation of the major investigation. There are pictures that had been taken, but nothing is in the police museum, records, or evidence files. Everything on this case has been lost. So outside of the facial reconstruction that was featured on this Nazi murder, murder mystery that was video recorded for this show, everything else has been lost. There's nothing in police archives, nothing in the police museum, records, evidence, nothing. So let's look at some theories on this. Because this, I thought this was a very interesting case. And there's a lot of different theories here. Because, you know, you have this woman that just shows up stuffed in this tree in the middle of this war-torn area and nobody can figure it out yet somebody obviously knows who this person is and seems to know what happened and they're taunting police but nobody can even catch who's writing these messages so here are the theories steve punt a radio reporter suggested two possible victims in a 2014 radio program. The first theory is that the victim is a prostitute named Bella who worked on Hackley Road that was reported missing to police in 1944 by another prostitute. Of course, you know, who's really going to go looking for a missing prostitute? Who cares about a missing prostitute? So, of course, nobody looked at that angle. I mean, police did say that they thought she was a prostitute, but they didn't put that together. I mean, 
if there was a missing prostitute reported to police in that area during that time period, why would they not look for more information and try to see if they could put those pieces together? His second theory is that the author of the graffiti knew the identity of the victim or the killer. Well, isn't that kind of what we said? I mean, isn't that what the police said? I mean, obviously whoever is writing this either knows something or is trying to make it seem like they know something. In 1953, Una Mossop told police her ex-husband, Jack Mossop, and a Dutchman called Van Rolt had confessed to family members that they had put the woman in the tree. So here is their story. They say they met for drinks at Littleton Arms, a pub in Hagley. Later that night, the woman uh, that they'd met with, the prostitute, became drunk and passed out in the truck while they were driving. They put her in the tree with hopes that she would wake in the morning and be scared into seeing the errors of her ways. I mean, what, gentlemen? You know, they were just trying to scare her straight. He said when she woke, she was unable to climb out of the tree and she died. How does he know that? How Was he watching her? And he saw that she woke up and couldn't get out of the tree. And so he just watched her struggle to try and get out of the tree and watched her die there. I mean, how long did he watch her? How many days did he watch her? I think that I could figure out how to get out of a freaking tree. Uh, that just doesn't seem right. That, that doesn't sound right. Okay. So... This doesn't explain taffeta stuffed in her throat unless this was the material that Bob Farmer said dropped into the skull and was pushed down with the stick. Jack Mossop was confined to the Stafford Mental Hospital and died there before the body was found. So her husband was already dead. So this woman was coming forward and telling this story about a man who was already dead and couldn't corroborate her story. So this is not likely to be correct because the woman didn't come forward for 10 years. So not only had her husband been dead before she told the story, she didn't come forward for 10 years. Her husband was dead. He had been in a mental institution and now she comes forward with this story. There's another version of the story which Bella was a spy sent to get information on local munition factories and Jack Mossop witnessed her death. So maybe he witnessed this death and that was why he ended up in the state mental hospital because he saw her death and maybe that was where he was saying she couldn't get out of the tree and she died and maybe his story was kind of mixed up and confused and his wife got it mixed up and confused I I don't know I guess if you if he already had mental health issues anyway and or had been drinking 
and then watched the woman be killed and stuffed in the tree or watched her be stuffed in the tree and executed, he could have had a psychotic break at that moment. Professor Margaret Murray, an anthropologist and archaeologist from the University College London, proposed in 1945, so this wasn't very long after Bella had been found, that Bella was killed by gypsies in a ritualistic killing and her hand was cut off to form a hand of glory. So a hand of glory is a traditionally the right hand of a felon that's cut off while his body is still hanging from the gallows and it's pickled. It was then made into a candle and said to have magical powers. It was used by burglars to send victims to sleep in the house so that they weren't able to wake up while burglars were in the house and this just kept everybody safe. So, okay, but one, Bella wasn't hung. Two, her hand wasn't pickled. <laughs> her hand wasn't made into a candle. And her hand was found there, so it wasn't taken. So I don't know what her logic was there. There are a few versions of this in which the clenched hand is used as a candle holder. They light all five fingers. There are different versions of this. Uh, the Whitby Museum in England is the only known place to have a surviving hand of glory. These were actually made and were they were a thing at one time. But it just doesn't make sense that this is why Bella was killed or that this is the manner in which her hand was supposed to have been used because her death and all of this doesn't fit in with the way that the hand of glory was generally made. Dr. Murray also connected Bella's murder to another murder that was potentially connected to witchcraft. The murder of Charles Walton, who was stabbed and pinned to the ground with a pitchfork, in the nearby village of Lower Quentin. She claimed Bella was executed for a crime against her coven. Police dismissed this theory quickly, but it has continued to be a favorite. So, this is something that people in the area continue to say is one of the favorite folklore in the area is that Bella was executed for crimes against her coven, that she was a witch. Peter Douglas Osborne, a counselor for Birmingham City, recalls a story his father told him when he was a child. He says that they were walking through the Hagley Woods and saw a burned out tree. His father stopped at the tree and told him about Bella and about the story of Bella. In 1953, another story surfaced that Bella was a Dutch woman named Clarabella Dronkers, who was killed by a German spy ring consisting of a British officer, a Dutchman, and a music hall artist for knowing too much. Some believe she was killed when she came upon a group of Nazi spies. So this could possibly be what happened. 
Some think that the ritualistic style of the murder was just a smokescreen that was used by snipers to kill Nazi spies. And it was kind of to throw them off the trail to make it seem like, okay, so this is some local folklore or witches or satanic worshippers or something that wouldn't look like it's Nazi spies. Clara Burrell was a German actress and a cabaret singer. Before the war, she worked in West Midlands music halls and had mastered the language and the accent. This means she was valuable as a spy because she could blend in with the general population. In 1941, Gestapo agent Joseph Jacobs was captured by the Home Guard after parachuting into Cambridgeshire. He claimed Clara was his lover and also a spy that had been sent over and the two had not made contact. So he's claiming that this German actress had supposed to have been sent over, but they hadn't made contact. So Jacobs was executed by firing squad August 15, 1941. He was the last man put to death at the Tower of London. And there is no record of Clara being in the area, but there is also no films or billboards or records of engagement of her after the spring of 1941. She just disappeared off the face of the earth. So could Clara Burrell be Bella? That is also something that has been said. However, there may be a death certificate for Clara Barella, stating she died in a hospital in December of 1942. So this would be before Bella died or before Bella was found. This has been hard to verify and those who've investigated have had difficulty getting this information but it's possible that this has been found. Police continue to push the idea that Bella was a prostitute or a lower class citizen. And because of all of the chaos and the war, there was a lot of mobility through the area. And they don't think that she was really a spy because they don't think that it was really possible for a spy to get into that area without them getting caught. They think that she was just a lower class citizen that was murdered, possibly a prostitute, and just kind of got lost in the shuffle and all of the missing persons and all of the people that were leaving the area and just never found. The graffiti artist was never was never found, even though it continued to pop up all the way until the 70s. So did the person know who Bella was? Were they just trying to keep the investigation open? Did they know who killed Bella? Was it one of the kids that had found Bella? Or somebody that they had told about this that was just trying to keep this investigation going so that they would figure out who Bella was. This case has always interested me. It's kind of a bit spooky to think of those 
three boys just happening upon Bella's tree, she might not have ever been found. I mean, she might have just stayed there and the tree just grown around her. But they happened upon her and happened to be guests in her tree. And so she was found. But somebody out there knew who she was and what happened, I believe. I do think that the person who was writing the graffiti knew something. And probably told somebody else. So there is probably somebody out there who knows or has an idea of what happened to Bella. Who's heard a story. Who's heard the legend. And, you know, who can give us an idea of what's going on. So if you know, if you've heard, I would love to hear it or love to hear your thoughts. are we ready for a mystery so for our mystery today we are going to talk about the disappearance of Rebecca Corium Rebecca was born on March 11th 1987 and we are going to stick with England because she was born in Chester England she grew up with her parents she had a sister and two brothers In her teens, she worked at Chester Zoo with some of her relatives, and she joined the British Army Cadets. After high school, she attended Plymouth University studying sports science. After she graduated, she took a position as a staff volunteer in the Cadets and participated in outdoor events, taught sports at Camp America in the U.S., and took additional classes in youth studies at Liverpool Hope University. So she really liked being outdoors. She really liked doing sporty type stuff and working with kids. So in June 2010, Rebecca was interviewed for a Disney cruise in London. And she got that job. So she started training at Disneyland in Florida and then started working for the cruise line, traveling the world. Her first assignment was out of Florida, working four months straight on a ship that went to the Bahamas. Then she went back to Chester for two months off. So, I mean, here's this young woman who is getting to see the world. She's getting to travel the world and see new things she's getting to do things that she loves and then getting to go home for a few months and then go back out and travel some more so i mean what a wonderful adventure for this young woman rebecca's next assignment was on the disney wonder that was based out of los angeles she left the port of los angeles and visited the mexican riviera and went through the panama canal Then she got the call that her grandfather had died. Becca went back home to Chester for two weeks to see her family and attend the funeral. This is the last time her family would ever see her. Rebecca was only 24 years old. She was described as being sweet and fun-loving. She worked with kids aboard the cruise ship as an activities director 
And in her free time, she enjoyed hanging out with the staff. She felt free to be herself on the cruise. She got along with other members of the crew. She just really was well-liked by everybody, it seemed. Rebecca liked to stay close to her family, even though she traveled a lot. She wrote to them. She made phone calls as often as she could. And she maintained contact through Skype and Facebook. So she was very, very close to her family, even though she traveled a lot. Um, This is a young woman that was living her dream. She spent all of this time in school studying ways to work with kids and to do all of these things. And here she is on a cruise ship, traveling the world, working with kids as an activities director. She's getting to see everything, go back home for a little bit. She's, But she's still staying in contact with her family as often as she possibly can. Her last message to her family was sent through Facebook on March 21st, 2011, saying that she would call the next day. This was sent while the ship was docked in Los Angeles. The next day, the ship left and headed to Mexico. Okay, so the next morning, the Wonder was off the coast of Mexico, heading for Puerto Vallarta. At 9 a.m., Rebecca was already late for her shift, and the crew were starting to get worried. See, Rebecca loved her work, and it wasn't like her to be late. She was always punctual. She was reliable. She was always there. And so when they couldn't find her in her room, they tried paging her, but then she wasn't answering the pages over the public intercom. So now on the other side of the world, in Chester, England, her parents are starting to get worried because it's been 12 hours since they heard from her. Again, Rebecca's very punctual. And when she tells her family, I, I'll talk to you tomorrow, they know that, you know, the next day she's going to talk to them. She's going to message them, just like she said. And they have been looking for her message and they haven't gotten anything. This wasn't like her. It's been like 12 hours since they've heard from her. So Rebecca's promises to calls call were always kept. And if something had come up, she would have messaged them through Facebook to let them know that something was holding her up and there was some reason that she couldn't call them. So she's not messaging them. She hasn't called them. They haven't gotten anything from her, from the crews, from nothing with the reason why she hasn't called. So now her family's worried the crew's worried, and nobody can find her. Let's keep in mind, she's on a cruise ship. It's not like she's in England or in the United States and can just disappear. She's on a cruise ship. So security cameras found only one appearance of Rebecca in the crew area on an internal phone. This was at 5.45 in the morning, and after this, she just kind of vanishes into thin air. Uh, The ship's management contacts the Coast Guard and gets the Navy involved in searching for her. And And the company follows laws of international waters to get a formal investigation started. 
So once this is concluded, they complete the report and send for Rebecca's parents so they can brief them on the findings of the investigation. All of this seems to be all tied up in a nice, neat little package. They did what they were supposed to do. So Mike and Anne-Marie Corium, these are Rebecca's parents, were brought from England to meet the ship when it returned to Los Angeles. They were brought aboard the ship and debriefed about their daughter's disappearance and the conclusions found in the investigation. They were then taken to their daughter's room to gather her belongings so they could take them back with them. And, I mean, this is, this is basically it. This is Disney. This is a Disney cruise that we all think of. This really fun, wonderful, sweet, kind, you know, we all have fond memories of Disney. And so we want to think of this this cruise line as being that type of a place too, a safe place. And here this young woman has just disappeared and they found one camera with her on it. And from there we have nothing else. So what were the conclusions of this investigation? I mean, they bring her parents all the way over from England give them a quick debriefing, hand them her belongings, and shove them out the door. So, Disney Company's official report stated that Rebecca was swept overboard by a rogue wave when she was at the cruise swimming pool. I would think that on a cruise line, they would make sure that... These types of things really couldn't happen. I mean, that would have to be a pretty magnificent rogue wave to sweep somebody overboard. And I would think a wave like that would probably have been noticed and wouldn't have gone unnoticed until suddenly, oh, somebody's missing. Hmm, should have been a rogue wave, I guess. You know, nobody saw that rogue wave. Nobody noticed a rogue wave sweep over the boat and over the deck, but that's what happened. Yeah. So, so in October 2011, journalist John Ronson boarded the Wonder along the same route that Rebecca went missing. This is the same ship, the same route that Rebecca Coriam went missing, and he decides to discreetly investigate her disappearance because... Basically, he felt that the story that was officially reported was just a loadable. He questioned some of the crew members who had been there at the time that she'd gone missing. These crew members suggested that Disney and the Bahamian police, and yes, you heard me correctly, this cruise line went to Mexico and she disappeared near Mexico but the investigation was done by the Bahamian police, and we will discuss that in a few minutes. But the crew members believed that more was known than what the police were letting on. However, they're officially supposed to say this incident never happened. Yeah, Rebecca never went missing. This never happened. It's like she never existed. So Ronson goes 
to the jogging track on deck four because Rebecca kept herself in shape by jogging regularly on this track. The railing was low enough for an accident to easily occur in this area. And there are numerous cameras in this area. So if something happened, this should have been recorded. However, a deck worker tells Ronson that Rebecca went overboard on deck five, which is the crew pool. He cited a flip-flop was found there and the company placed flowers near the wall. This is all the deck worker knew because he came on the ship when it docked back in Los Angeles right after the incident had happened. So when the when the ship returned and stuff, he was there. He got on after that. So he's just piecing things together because almost no one's really talking about Rebecca. And there's just some gossip because a lot of things just aren't actually known it's like nobody knows what happened and you know there's just bits and pieces that are put together so Ronson being a guest and not crew was not given access to the crew area because you know he's technically a guest he's not supposed to be investigating he's not supposed to be their unofficial business. So he looked at the crew pool from deck 10, but it appears that the railing on the deck around the crew pool were too high to accidentally fall over or to really jump over. He was told then by other crew members that the pool was surrounded by a six foot wall and that it doesn't have an ocean view. So this pool that she supposedly went out to and was washed away by a rogue wave is surrounded by a six-foot wall. So again, that was a pretty good wave that everybody on the ship missed. This portion of the ship is also just below the ship's bridge. And if someone went overboard there, it should have been seen. Because, you know, somebody should have been watching and steering the ship and yet nobody saw that happen hmm something very fishy seems to be going on here so here are theories that are going around so the official version of what happened the disney version aside from rebecca doesn't exist this didn't happen is that Rebecca went to the crew pool to relax. The seas were choppy and a giant rogue wave swept over the front of the ship and carried her out to sea. So problems with this official theory. It ignores the fact that she was seen at 5.45 that morning and the state in which she was last seen, which will also be discussed here in a few minutes. There are apparently cameras everywhere on the ship everywhere and yet she disappears and no one sees where she went no one sees her go to the pool that morning no one sees her being swept away by this wave nobody even sees this wave apparently 
And they have proof of none of this happening. Like, none of this. They don't see her go into the pool that morning. They don't see a wave. They don't see anything. With all of these cameras all over the ship, nobody records anything that can even lead to this proof that any of this happened. Rebecca's parents' theory. So this is what her parents think happened. So Rebecca's parents think that she was sexually assaulted. They believe that she was sexually assaulted and murdered to cover this up. And then her body was thrown overboard. They believe that Disney is covering this up because they don't want this to go public. And that they know that this happened. And so that's why this is all hush-hush and Rebecca doesn't exist. So problems with this theory is that other than Rebecca appearing to be upset on the security video at 5.45 that morning... Again, there's no evidence. We don't have any evidence. There's no one that's come forward saying that they spoke to her that morning or what she said. Although she was on the phone. But nobody's come forward saying that she was talking to them on the phone that morning. John's theory is that Disney is covering up what happened to Rebecca to cover themselves up. Regardless of if this was an accident or if it was intentional. Something happened on that ship Something went wrong with Rebecca and they know exactly what happened and they are covering it up because they don't want to be liable. So Rebecca's girlfriend's theory and this is the plot turner. So while on her next to last voyage, Rebecca met Tracy Medley who worked with her on the children's department of the cruise, and they started to have this very steamy affair. Rebecca left the voyage early for her grandfather's funeral, and when she came back, Tracy's boyfriend had joined the cruise again. He was a bartender with the ship, and he had been on his time off because, you know, they they go out for a month or two and then they get time off and then they come back. So Tracy had gone back to her relationship with him when he came back, but she couldn't stay away from Rebecca. So they convinced Rebecca to have a threesome with them. After which Rebecca became distraught about what she had done. And this is the first time she had ever been with a man she wanted to leave and she wanted Tracy to go with her. She was just really distraught. This wasn't what she wanted. This wasn't what she'd signed up for. When she had left for her grandpa's funeral, everything was great. And she comes back and there's this new guy that's in between them. She tried this. This wasn't what she wanted. So she wants Tracy to leave with her. Tracy was tired and told her that she was going to stay where she was and she was going to sleep. But they left the door unlocked so Rebecca could come back. Basically, the girlfriend is saying that this is actually what happened that night before Rebecca disappeared. And Rebecca doesn't come back. Tracy said Rebecca had often talked about committing suicide by jumping overboard. And had once told her that she felt like a failure because she couldn't do so. So... She wanted to kill herself, but she couldn't kill herself, and she felt like a failure because she couldn't kill herself. 
And she said that it was because Rebecca's parents couldn't accept her. Tracy believes that Rebecca jumped overboard that morning. She believes that she left. She was so distraught over all of this that she just went out and she jumped overboard. Of course, that ties everything up in a nice, neat little bow, right? My theory. I believe that part of what Tracy said is true. According to Rebecca's parents, Rebecca had told her parents about Tracy. Her parents knew about her sexuality. They knew how their daughter felt. They knew what was going on. They also knew about Tracy's boyfriend, the bartender. Rebecca knew that this bartender was going to be coming back the second leg of that trip. Tracy had mentioned before that she was afraid she was going to be sexually assaulted on this ship. I believe that an evening of drinking with the three of them, and they wound up in his room, and when Tracy said no, or when Rebecca said no, Tracy and the bartender sexually assaulted her. Afterwards, she left the room. She grabbed whatever clothes she could find, because on the video that you see, she's wearing baggy clothes that just don't look like they fit her. She looks very distraught. She's pacing. She's on the phone. It looks like she she left and she went to call for help. However, she got the wrong kind of help. I think she was murdered by Tracy. I think the bartender and maybe somebody else on the ship, maybe somebody higher up, somebody that was friends with them, helped And that this was covered up and footage of this got erased to get rid of the evidence. The investigation was mishandled by Disney and it was swept under the rug and they acted like it never existed. Other theories is that Rebecca climbed up the wall, the crew pool that morning that she disappeared and fell overboard and that this was an accident, possibly a suicide but most likely an accident that she just crawled up there because, you know, there's a six-foot wall. There's no ocean view. She went out there. She climbed up on the wall to just look out at the ocean and fell. She was jogging on the track and had an accident, slipped or tripped, and fell over the rails. Or she left the ship with guests and disappeared, leaving on her own, and left her life behind. But that doesn't sound like Rebecca, not somebody who stayed in constant communication with her family to just leave her family like that. So problems with the investigation. There are claims that when Rebecca was first reported missing and could not be found on the ship, that they did not turn around per protocol and try to find her. So when they first realized that she was not on the ship and nobody could find her, they didn't stop the ship. They didn't turn around and go back to the area where she was missing and try to find her. The Coast Guard and Navy were called, but supposedly they were given the wrong coordinations to search. So they were told the wrong area to go and search. Under the the Flags of Convenience System jurisdiction, of the case fell under the country of the ship's country of registration. So this is where the Bahamian police come in. 
The wonder was registered in the Bahamas for tax purposes. So I told you we'd get there and this is why we have the Bahamian police. So Disney is an American company and this ship left the port of Los Angeles and went to Mexico and left the port in Mexico and was heading back to the U.S., back to Los Angeles, and wasn't actually that far from Mexico when Rebecca went missing, and yet the Bahamian police were the ones that were called in to do the investigation because Disney was using the Bahamas for tax break. So they had to use them to investigate the disappearance instead of the U.S. The Disney company did not contact the Royal Bahama Police Force to investigate the disappearance until three days after Rebecca disappeared. Three days. So after this, they wouldn't go back. They didn't turn back. They did contact the Navy and the Coast Guard, but supposedly gave them wrong coordinations. Three days after they contacted the Bahaman police and told them so that they could come in and do their investigation. A lot of evidence can be cleaned up and destroyed in three days. A lot of video can be erased in three days. So the... Royal Bahama Police Force sent one detective, Paul Roll, who was flown out by Disney on a private jet and spent one day on the Wonder. He interviewed six of the 950 crew and zero of the 2,000 plus passengers that were on board the ship. Roll then concluded it was a rogue wave based on what the company told him and a pair of flip-flops that were left on the deck. So, tell me how a rogue wave sweeps a full-grown woman out to sea but leaves her flip-flops on the deck. That kind of bothers me. Rebecca's parents were brought to L.A. to be debriefed. And even this wasn't handled the way it should be. They were flown in by Disney and kept comfortable. However, they met the ship as it docked in L.A. So they met the ship just as it got back to port. Her parents were kept waiting in the car and watched as the guests deboarded. Once the guests were off the ship, they were taken on board through a side entrance like they were being secretly whisked into the ship with as little acknowledgement as possible. They were shown the pool area and the rogue wave theory was told to them. They were then taken to a room where they were allowed to collect her personal items. And the official report was never released to her parents due to Restricted personal information contained in the report. Restricted personal information. If her parents were her next of kin and they could bring her in, they could walk her through the investigation 
and take her to her room and give her her personal belongings, but they can't release the official investigative report because of restricted personal information. To me, that doesn't add up either. So Rebecca's parents were given her personal belongings and were given time to clean out her room. Their time on the ship wasn't more than a couple of hours and they were never taken anywhere in the ship where guests would be. They were escorted out the side door, which they had been brought in earlier, and taken back to the car with the blackout windows. And they watched as a ship that was now full of new guests who had arrived while they were being debriefed about the fate of their daughter and given her personal belongings. They watched as the ship was filling with these new guests and as they sat in the car, they watched the ship leave dock and head back out to sea as if nothing had ever happened in last voyage. So there are inconsistencies in the stories that were told. As far as the investigator and John Ronson found, Melissa, a crew member who seemed to be the spokesperson for the ship, to Ronson, told him that Rebecca went out to the pool at 11 the night before and she was found to be missing. But the video shows her making a phone call at 5.45 that morning. This call was recorded and caught on camera. It was the last video that Disney admitted to having of Rebecca. But this Melissa woman says that she went out at 11. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. They also say that Rebecca was a risk taker and that she might have climbed up the wall. This was said numerous times. Though it might have been true that she went to the pool at 11 the night before, she was still caught on that video at 5.45 in the morning. So there's no way that she went out at 11, climbed up on the wall, and that's when she disappeared. The pair of flip-flops that were said to be found on the deck of the pool and were supposed to have been Rebecca's, were not the right size. They weren't her style. Her parents tried to tell them that, and they still said that they were hers. These were also supposed to have been left on the deck after the waves swept over the deck. Again, to me, that just doesn't make any sense. Rebecca's mother also stated that a pair of Rebecca's favorite shorts were found to have been torn which she feels indicated some type of violence. In checking on weather patterns and sea levels during the time and place where Disney Wonder was during the time of the possible disappearance of Rebecca Corium, it shows pleasant weather and normal sea levels. So John Ronson says that there really wasn't any waves that were big enough that could have washed over the boat like that. Rebecca's parents remember her telling them about a female and an older male crew member that she was involved with and that was most likely the love triangle, Tracy and the bartender boyfriend. Rebecca's parents stated that they were aware of their daughter's sexuality and they never had a problem with this. 
Their daughter was very open with them regarding her girlfriends and had talked about her recent love interest on the ship and about there being an older man involved in this relationship. She had told her parents and her friends that she was afraid that she would be sexually assaulted on the ship. Rebecca's parents say that they went to her room and they found tickets for Disneyland Paris for them and her sister, as well as other gifts she had bought for them on her next trip home. They also found a note by the phone that said, Call Mum, which indicated she was making future plans, and that's not something that somebody who's planning suicide would do. They report she never suffered from depression of any type and never made any type of suicidal remarks. The ship has security cameras everywhere. I think I'd mentioned that earlier, that there are security cameras everywhere, including in the crew pool area. There should not have be any area outside of private rooms and restrooms that would not be recorded. The crew also told the journalist John Ronson that the inner staff phone calls were even recorded. This would include the phone call that Rebecca was seen making on the video. Cameras in the hall should have been able to follow her during her last movements through the ship. So they should have been able to follow her up to the moment that she disappeared. They should have known exactly what happened to her. Cameras in the hall did show that while she was on the phone, she was in overly large male pajamas. From there, she just kind of disappeared. Rebecca's parents reported Disney did contact them to say that they had additional video footage that they had sent to the FBI for enhancement. The company did not say what was on the footage and they have not heard back from them about any of the enhancements or any new evidence. Lastly, two months after Rebecca went missing, there was activity on her credit cards. There were reports of sightings, but some of these have been debunked. The family state they do not know what to think of this and cannot believe that she disappeared and didn't contact them. So unfortunately, the family still doesn't have answers and Rebecca just disappeared. So they don't know, really, did she disappear and start a new life? It doesn't sound like it. Did she jump? Did she commit suicide? Was she really depressed and they just didn't see it? Did a rogue wave really sweep over the ship and wash her out to sea, leaving her flip-flops behind? Or was she thrown overboard? At this point, I don't know that we will ever find out because unless Disney releases the rest of the videos and comes forward with what happened, we won't know. And that's our murder and our mystery for this episode. I hope you enjoy. Bye.